As a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yog Sathoth is the key to the gate whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now, after summer is winter, and after winter summer. They wait, patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. genre the podcast so gripping you think that we have tentacles in our trousers i'm zach i'm bob hey if you're listening to us and you enjoy the show by all means go and rate this show that stuff really helps the podcast grow today we are reading hp lovecraft's the dunwich horror how, how are you pronouncing this bob is it dunwich dunwich i've been saying dunwich but apparently it could be based the name could be based on greenwich so I've never oh. heard anyone say Dunwich, though. Doesn't sound as spooky. Dunwich horror sounds much spookier. It it almost rhymes with sandwich horror. And to me, that kind of <laughs> adds a little hmm, comic level. Much more delicious. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is the third H.P. Lovecraft text we've read together. The other two being Call of Cthulhu and Herbert West Reanimator. And I got to say, I think this, you know what? We did read Mountains of Madness together Mountains as well. Mountains of Madness. Yeah. yeah I just yeah. thought of the same thing. <laughs> I, I am loving all of these HP Lovecraft stories. There is a deep level of disturbing. It's it's the cosmic horror, but it's also the way that cosmic horror is presented. I love this strange character, Wilbur, who's born quickly as this ugly baby who's talking, walking around by five. He looks like he's 15. He becomes six and a half feet tall by the time that he's seven or eight. There's weird things that HP Lovecraft is doing here, and it's not just the giants from the past. The way they affect people is very weird. One element that really stuck out to me on this one is that this one is actually, it feels very American, if that makes sense. Like it's a specifically American brand of horror. You know, it starts off with this epigram about witches. We get a Charles Lamb quote from this book called Witches and Other Night Fears, which is a real text. And he says, Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras dire stories of Kaileno and the Harpies may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. So this epigram that we're getting is basically saying all of these monsters, these monstrous things that make us, you know, get shivers in the night, you know, it's not that they're just superstition. They are a spiritual fear that stems back from a kind of primordial existence. And the epigram seems to be implying that these things are actually real. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe their image has been shaped by superstition, but it's kind of like a reptile brain response to a spiritual monstrous thing. I think that's what he's trying to aim for in his horror, too. It's always a kind of reptilian response that that lizard brain response to, oh, my God, what am I looking at? When you get the Necronomicon, you don't exactly know what it's telling you. You don't exactly. The image is not clear. And what it's trying to depict for you, whatever you read about these Thulu-related texts, but it sends a shock of fear all through your body. And it makes the people who get access to these texts and access to these materials, they go insane. And it's not exactly clear why they go insane. They're now exposed to something so ancient that is in their blood that when they're exposed to it, they can't hack it. A couple ways he does this. And we do get an example of a character who sees the monstrosity, the the Dunwich horror, and falls down, you know, completely overtaken by what they've what they've seen. A really interesting thing is that the monster is invisible. 
So we only know it by the destruction that it brings. And it takes them having a kind of kind of like, I don't want to say weapon, but a tool used to combat insects filled with powder and dust. And they actually have to spray it. And once they spray the monster, they don't see the monster really directly as far as I can tell. They, you know, they they basically sprayed a fire extinguisher on the monster and it's covered in this powder. And that's when the the actual monstrosity reveals itself as this mass of twisting ropes. And and the guy who sprays it just falls down. He's just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's a key part of Lovecraft. We saw that in the Mountains of Madness too. Not just access to the text, but when you glimpse the monster, it's never exactly head on. And if you do glimpse it head on, you're ruined. We saw in the Mountains of Madness, they're escaping from the the ancient ones, the monsters coming up out of this mountain. They look back and just see like the reflection of this monster and pass out. And they're never the same again. I think that gives us the power to imagine these terrible, terrible things. What I like about Lovecraft is how the language that he uses in the text, you know, it's not just that he tells you it's so monstrous that they passed out, but his he he actually makes an honest attempt to describe these Lovecraftian creatures. And the descriptions, as far as I can tell, are just nonsense. Like, like he does these incredibly detailed descriptions, but my brain can't kind of collate all these details into a functional picture. Let me read a quick quote. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long greenish-gray tentacles with red-sucking mouths protrude limply. Their arrangement was odd and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. So he keeps going. This is a long paragraph, but he talks about how there's some kind of rudimentary eye, how instead of a tail, there's a trunk, like an elephant's trunk, I suppose, with purple annular markings an undeveloped mouth or throat, limbs with black fur, claws. Red sucking mouths, I think is the the worst one. Yeah, and instead of blood, there's greenish yellow ichor. So I I read this the first time and I was like, what? Yeah, like how how is my brain supposed to put this together? What what is your experience with this? Like I feel like the only way is just to kind of like draw along as he as he describes. <laughs> it's very disgusting. It's a very visceral reaction. And the previous books that we've read by him, the closest we get to clear, disgusting descriptions of bodies is a like a mist-like form that seemed to be full of eyeballs chasing you down a subway tunnel. But this is horrifying thing after horrifying thing. It was a real reaction of disgust. And I, I wasn't actually expecting that with Lovecraft, but he, because he seems to kind of keep that a little bit at bay, usually, the, the direct description of disgusting things. Did you find it disgusting? I have an interesting <laughs> kind of psychological thing that kind of gets in the way of me reading, which is I'll Google the name of the Lovecraft book, and it will show me the monster. It will show me a picture of the monster. This happened with Cthulhu. This happens with Wilbur Waitley. But then I see some artist's rendition of it. And now, anytime I, I approach these descriptions, I get that artist's picture. So my brain has stopped working because my brain kind of refers back to the artist picture I saw. But interestingly enough, when I return to these descriptions, they never match what the artist has done. It's never, you know, it's always leaving out some monstrous detail. But, you know, in a, in a way, I've kind of stopped reading. I've stopped paying attention because the artist has done the work for me. 
Lovecraft has many, 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 many monsters, and they are all quite hard to picture, but many of them I'm sure have had artist renditions too many times. But he was getting popular because he was publishing with weird tales at the time. I wonder if he started to get tired of these descriptions and if he started seeing these monsters too clearly. He probably didn't see many fan renditions right away. That's probably more today. But when he was writing, I'm wondering if he's trying to escape what he's already pictured too clearly in his head to try and get further away, or if he just likes creating his own lore. But as a creator describing these things, if they if he stops thinking about it, he's probably going to want to create something new again. I kind of imagine him as a like a painter, you know, adding mm-hmm. in successive layers of detail. You know, he, he you know, start off with monster and then he's like monster with goat legs. Monster with goat legs with tentacles. Monster with goat legs that have eyes embedded into them with tentacles. You know, like yeah. I, I, I couldn't. I, I would be. I would honestly be horrified if Lovecraft had each of these monsters like already built inside of his imagination and he's just putting putting the descriptions on paper. I feel like he has to be like an artist building up layer after layer, you know, <laughs> just adding. I have a student in my class right now. He always draws the same exact monster on the board and I tell him, stop doing that. We're studying. And then he'll make the same <laughs> monster and just add a little bit more. Two more wings, four more eyes every time it's a bigger monster, but the same base. You know, someday that kid is going to grow up to be the next H.P. Lovecraft, and he's going to be like, when I was a kid, in his biography, he'll be like, well, <laughs> I had a teacher who told me to stop doing this, and look at me no, now. No, You're no. going to be the villain in t- this, this author story. <laughs> I'm going to be the villain. No, I t- he told me one day, maybe one day I can be a famous monster drawer, and I said, yes, that's what you're going to do. Can you draw monsters related to the text? And then he drew a marching band of <laughs> monsters, and it was great. People have compared this Wilbur Watley character to H.P. Lovecraft, someone with a weird mother who tells them strange things, and someone who's kind of isolated and called ugly. His mother would call him ugly a lot, apparently, which is not very good mothering, Miss Lovecraft. But he <laughs> apparently is comparing himself to this Wilbur Whateley character, Watley character, and this Wilbur character is very interesting. He is similar to when we read a story by Arthur Conan Doyle, so Arthur Conan Doyle, lot number 49, where we have a very intelligent person that we are very attracted to initially because he has all of these, he has this knowledge, he's got access to these ancient tomes, he can speak other languages, he impresses people. Now we have this Wilbur character who is that, but also hideous. What do you think of this Wilbur character? Have we seen a, a horror protagonist like this or have we seen a monster like this before well i think it's a good jumping off point to kind of compare him to the antagonist of arthur conan doyle's lot 249 simply because that character became i think he's described as demonic with languages he's speaking coptic to the cops hebrew to the jews and arabic to the bedouins is kind of the famous line of that book but you get the sense that he's done this through hard work you know, he's he's dedicated his life to being Egyptologist, to studying these things. Where, whereas our character here, Wilbur, Wilbur is growing at a comical rate. I think Wilbur is like 12 or 13 years old at the moment of his death, but he's already seven feet tall. So when Wilbur is writing in these, you know, horrible cryptograms, you, you get the sense that it's not Wilbur's own doing, at least not 100%. Wilbur seems to be tapping into a dark cosmic force of which he has access to because he's, you know, half human, half elder god. Hmm. He is still putting in the work. He's in his little hut 
just like the villain in Doyle's story is in the basement studying, looking at these tomes. But you're right. Wilbur is already destined to be this. There's no choice. He can't avoid it because his body is being taken over by this elder god. And that's what's making him grow so fast. That's what's making him hideous. But it's an interesting character to get attached to. There's no real protagonist here until the end when we have people trying to stop it. But he's an interesting character to see develop because you know he's destined to be evil and there's no way to stop that evil. I what I what I thought was really effective in this book was the actual attempts of kind of the normal people grappling with it, if that makes sense. Like when when we get the the view, the perspective of the professors at Miskatonic. So we get this moment where it's like the curious manuscript record or diary of Wilbur Waitley delivered to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in languages both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet, notwithstanding a general resemblance to the heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia, being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguist was that the text represented an artificial alphabet, giving the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual methods of cryptographic solutions seemed to furnish any clue. So you have these professors, these geniuses in their field who are looking at Wilbur's books, Wilbur's diary, and they are just stumped at it. And what they say after they finally decode it, they say that it's highly startling and disquieting because it's written by a child of three and a half who looks like a lad of 12 or 13. So you get this, the monstrous aspect of this story is the fact that you have this demon child. You know what I mean? It's like the omen, Damien, the child who's the son of Satan and says things that they shouldn't really say. They're just too young to do these things. And Wilbur is kind of operating in the same register, I think. I really like that you mentioned Damien. I was thinking a little bit of Rosemary's baby in this book. Something that's very disturbing to me is how is his mother does she meet this father what how does she become impregnated it's very disturbing this is it's ancient god it had to be some sort of ritual but she gets this terrible thing that she then has to give birth to and becomes so monstrous there's twins wilbur becomes seven feet tall but that is not the worst of it his twin brother becomes so big he explodes a two-story house that's the monster that's walking around <laughs> invisibly that was an interesting level of disturbance. In Rosemary's Baby, you have Rosemary eventually having the devil's child. And she has to wake up in the middle of the night where she has all of these people doing these terrible rituals around her. The experience for the mother here is quite scary, too. And that's an interesting aspect to the story is the family lineage is all jumbled up. Nothing, nothing is exactly clear to us as we go. We know that this family has undergone a lot of inbreeding. And it's it's really interesting how, as Lovecraft describes the different branches of this family tree, he talks about some of them being more pure in the sense of like untainted by inbreeding, I guess you would say. But Wilbur Waitley's family is deeply inbred. The characters we're given are the grandfather who dies, the mother who lives until she dies, and then a kind of father figure who we're led to understand isn't necessarily the father and then young Wilbur himself. The mother gives birth to Wilbur, but we're actually, the way the story unfolds leads us to understand that Wilbur's, you know, quote unquote father isn't actually his father. And when we meet the monster, the, the final line of the text is the professors coming to the understanding. Someone asks, how did Wilbur call this monster out of the air? 
And they respond, you needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air. He didn't call it out. It was his twin brother, but it looked more like the father than he did. So with this, we're we're led to understand that, you know, his quote unquote father isn't his father. It's this monstrous deity. Yeah, the family lineage of the Waitleys is really interesting because what we get is a description of total inbreeding. Like, I love how with Lovecraft, you know, one of the other Waitleys ends up joining the fight against these monsters, but he's described as a kind of more pure branch of the Waitley family. Whereas the Waitleys in this particular area are much more interbred with each other. The the family lineage is we have the mother who's described as an unattractive albino woman of 35, and she's living with her aged and half insane father, quote, about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Now, the mother has no known husband, but what we're told is that she hasn't tried to disavow the child. Like no one knows who the father of this kid is, but she hasn't given the child up. What I love is this coming to understanding throughout the text that Wilbur doesn't have a conventional father. One of the characters asks how, you know, the actual Dunwich horror, how did Wilbur call this thing into being? And one of the professors says, you needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air. He didn't call it out. It was his twin brother, but it looked more like the father than he did. It's really disturbing, too, if you think about the other option, which is the father is the grandfather, because there's no other explanation. It's either this elder god or this woman's father who impregnated her. Both are very disturbing. That seems to be kind oh. of the, the implication, or at least what I understood as I was reading it. Like, they're not going to talk about who the father is, so we have to assume that it's this old man and this kind of incestuous relationship. When we are introduced to this this incest, they're very old families that used to be important. They're families with coats of arms, but they've gotten into this weird inbreeding, almost like kings and queens, but they've been managing it themselves and it's gone quite awry, which I mean, already it's gone awry, but for royal families, it seems to work fine. But these families have gotten quite weird. When they escape, they might end up at Harvard, good for them. But this whole part is introduced to us when we're learning about the New England backwaters. This setting is quite American, like you said, and it is the backwater part of America that people forget about. And I think it's an interesting setting. We've seen when we read Dracula, where we were going past the woods into Eastern Europe into a what looks like a haunted, abandoned castle. In Body Snatchers, we notice that the suburbs are really important. Lot 49, it's the basement of a boarding school. So what do you think of this setting kind of in the in the backwoods out in the middle of nowhere where people are inbreeding? Well, I think there's an echo to what's going on with Dracula, not only in the sense of like a, a movement from civilization to the kind of wilderness. I mean, Transylvania in Latin means, you know, beyond the forest. Here you move from the great universities to, you know, beyond the woods to where these people live. But the opening image really sets the scene of this location. It says, Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on crumbling doorsteps or on the sloping, rock-strown meadows. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one somehow feels confronted by forbidden things, with which it would be better to have nothing to do. 
when a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits, too, are rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness, and sometimes the sky silhouettes with special clearness the queer circles of tall stone pillars with which most of them are crowned. This idea of mountains with ruins on them, tall stone pillars. It's this kind of hearkening back to something ancient, some ancient megalithic construction. You know, you think of like Stonehenge or, you know, Gobekli Tepli being on these mountains. And it, it functions as kind of like an echo of Dracula's castle overlooking the village, just in absolute despair. This is kind of what I was talking about, how nice it is to have a story set in America. It feels like it makes it feel like the kind of ancient mysteries before the kind of history that we're familiar with. Like there could be something dark and mysterious and abominable waiting there if we look. It's the same with these characters, this American Gothic thing going on. We have Wilbur, who appears to be a regular boy walking around, but when finally he dies and he splits apart and we see those nasty insides, which we've described, you find out that all of that was barely contained within him. He had to wear all of these layers of clothing. Now, he's tried to get around as a regular boy. He's tried to appear like a regular person. Finally, that's all broken. But it's interesting to see all of these dogs doubt him. We learn as he wanders around the backwoods of New England, he is constantly barked at because no dog trusts him. All dogs think that he's suspicious, are not trusting this ancient evil that he's bringing everywhere with him. <laughs> I love how I love how this is all kind of set up, you know, from the very beginning. So like at one point you get a kind of witness testimony about how someone sees one of the farmers sees two figures by the dim light of the lantern and they're naked and they're running up oh, these stone yeah. megaliths. And then he's like, well, they were naked, but I'm actually not sure about the boy. He had, I think he might've had some kind of fringed belt or maybe like dark trousers on. And that's like the first hint you get naked. Well, maybe not the boy. And then the other element is how dogs hate this kid. And, you know, it gets to this point, it develops where he has to walk around with a gun and dogs are always trying to kill him. So he has to shoot the dogs as he <laughs> as he goes around. And then, you know, the end of Wilbur Waitley, we find that, you know, he encounters a dog, but his pistol doesn't work or it jams or he drops it or something like that. And the dog actually kills him. And what we learn is that the lower half of his body is this monstrosity. So when they saw him naked, they thought he was wearing, you know, dark trousers or something like that. But it was actually the furry tentacled, you know, whatever the hell is going on with his lower half. But yeah, I, I love how Lovecraft kind of sets these dominoes up just to push them down and, and, and give us this big reveal. It's the same thing for the twin, the giant brother. He's trapped in this house and growing and growing and growing until he is growing so big, he's pushing the siding out of the house. So it's all about containing containing this ancient evil to go with that you know the villagers are noticing that the the father is just buying more and more cattle yeah, <laughs> but they're like great. his herds never increase in size <laughs> <laughs> yes the disappearing cattle this idea of containing what is within is also a central thing that we noticed in dracula and especially when they're still in Eastern Europe and Jonathan Harker comes, lives at Dracula's castle and Dracula's trying to appear somewhat normal at the beginning, not like a monster who's going to suck Jonathan Harker's blood. But 
The second half of the book is then Dracula going to England and trying to learn the ways of England so he can blend in and appear just like a regular person, but he is also luring people in. So I think a big part of horror, especially this gothic horror, is trying to maintain an appearance, but doing terrible things because you're connected to some ancient supernatural evil. And that ancient supernatural evil, I think just in terms of the history of the horror genre, I think that I think it was Stephen King who we previously read an essay on uh, the the introduction to the Body Snatchers book, which says that the genre of horror fiction was basically mesmerized by this kind of Lovecraftian vision of the universe where there are these ancient, mysterious, magical deities which are, you know, causing trouble on Earth, basically. For King, Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers was what kind of woke American horror fiction writers up and allowed them to start setting these stories in suburban America, in the city, in the present world, rather than being kind of indebted to Lovecraft's vision of horror. It's very interesting because if you think about Stephen King, it basically is Jack Finney, The Body Snatchers, plus H.P. Lovecraft. If you think about it or Outsider, it's always set in the suburbs and bad things are happening in the suburbs and it's starting to affect neighbor after neighbor after neighbor until whole neighborhoods are taken over. Then you find out it is the cosmic horror. It's something underneath that has come from an ancient time or from another universe and is here to wreak havoc. So Stephen King... This is is a point of speculation I have because I do Mm. wonder... If Stephen King always had that kind of cosmic horror element added on to his stories, like we can think of it as a good example, but it Mm. is just one of dozens and dozens and dozens of books by Stephen King. And he wrote so many of them before it or The Shining, for example. So it's like, I wonder if Stephen King did a full reaction to this kind of Lovecraftian vision of the world and then slowly came around to fold in those Lovecraftian cosmic horror elements. Or if, like you said, you know, he pushed back against it, but always had it there in the DNA already. It's in the DNA, just like these eldritch gods inside of these (laughs) poor inbred England backwater people. I'm really interested in H.P. Lovecraft and especially his connection with Weird Tales, the magazine that published lots of science fiction, lots of horror, lots of fantasy stories, because he was reading everybody and talking with everybody. He was trying to get all of these authors connected. He worked with Robert E. Howard and put the idea in his head that said, hey, you can use my universe. Your universe can fit inside my universe. So he was trying to work with these authors and He was a very well-read person, and I think the way he writes is kind of a pastiche. You compared him to an artist earlier where he adds, adds, adds. I saw some criticism of this story of Dunwich Horror saying that it's a combination of like six other stories, some of them published in Weird Tales. I think he quotes Arthur Mackin at one point. There's a book called The Great God Pan, which was published in 1894, and Lovecraft references it in this story. And that Arthur Mackin story, along with another one of his stories a year later, there's these characters that are half human and half god or half eldritch god. And then when they die, you discover that. That's when you finally discover that. So that comes directly from Arthur Mackin. And there's another thing with Marjorie Williams, who H.P. Lovecraft also read, where there are two brothers who live in the woods and neither of them are exactly human, but one is much closer to being human than another. There's other stories apparently that influence this as well, but I really like how Lovecraft is taking these elements, things that he was inspired by, and then now make it his own. For sure. Honestly, 
more than actually reading Lovecraft himself, I'm actually much more interested in the scholarly reception of Lovecraft and how he operated. I kind of want to dive deep into Lovecraft, the figure, maybe a little bit more than diving into this. I mean, in front of me, I have a a HP Lovecraft, the complete collection, which is like 800 pages of short stories, if not more. And honestly, I'm, I'm much more kind of mesmerized by the figure of Lovecraft himself than than the actual stories, if that makes sense. I feel like mm. I'd get more out of that. People really get into the mythos, and that is quite fun. I am mostly interested in his writing and writing style and the weird experiences that his writing gives me. But the mythos is huge. The industry behind H.P. Lovecraft now, he would be such a wealthy man. There are video games, board games, toys. Cthulhu is like one of the most popular Funko Pops. He would be so rich. But he died before <laughs> before any of that that fruit came to bear. But what do you think about this this mythos creation? We talked about some of these ancient gods before, and there's like forty that he made, and they all are quite important in these stories and creep up in them in different ways. But what do you think about this experience that people have to go through from reading Dunwich Horror, then reading Mountains of Madness, and trying to piece together this whole other universe? Are you interested in that or not taken in by it? Well, it's it's hard for me to speak on it as someone who's only read, you know, a few of his stories, but I did notice threads from this book to another. I think that Yogg-Sothoth was described as a cousin to Cthulhu. Wilbur is told by the ancient deities we learn from deciphering his diary that he wants to visit the city at the center of the earth that runs through the poles, you know, the poles of earth, but he's not able to until the earth is cleared off of humans. So, that to me was, I understood that to be a reference to at the Mountains of Madness when they go to the South Pole and discover that ancient, terrible city. I believe this is the first time that we've seen Yog sothoth though. It is. It, it feels like, a, for me, it feels like it's a pleasurable process of discovery, but I don't have a, I feel like I don't have a good, broad overview of how all the pieces fit together. You're not going to get out your red threads and figure out where Yog sothoth fits in with the, <laughs> the mist. Yeah, I like how it creeps up. That's that's mostly what I like about his writing is these weird things creep into the stories. And every time it's a very unique experience with unforgettable images and unforgettable characters who suffer from these eldritch gods. I think that is a very interesting part of making these characters go through so many terrible things. Well, I look forward to diving deeper into the mythos, not only reading H.P. Lovecraft's future books for horror stuff, but when we inevitably, you know, spin the wheel of genre and land on adventure and fantasy novels, and we can read Robert E. Howard's Conan series, which is also set within this same mythos. So there's a lot to look forward to there. And to the listeners, I just want to say that we recently launched our Patreon. Right now, we are diving deep into four different Dracula films from across the history of cinema, starting with Todd Browning's 1931 Dracula with Bela Lugosi. We just published Werner Herzog's Nosferatu from 1979. And and next up, we are recording Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, and Keanu Reeves. So, If you're interested in diving deep into the film reception of Dracula, by all means, check out the Patreon. We have a lot of fun projects going on over there. Bob, talk to you later. Talk to you later, Zach. We may never be the same. (laughs) 